I hate, yeah, I, I think from a young age I was always, you know, at school I was getting into trouble a lot because I hated the idea of following, I hated that. I ha uh, had a problem with, I suppose a problem with authority, again, it's so cliche, isn't it? Hello listener, my name is V, the voice of Pod, and I am the host of Podcaster. Podcaster is a show where I ask podcast creators a number of random questions. Then they give spontaneous, open and honest answers about life and the podcast they have created. Hello, podcaster. Hello, nice to meet you. Please introduce yourself and your podcast to our listeners. My name is Andrew Gold. I'm a documentary maker and journalist, and my podcast is called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. How are you today? Woke up with a bit of a sort of bad neck and headache. It's that thing, you know, with the whole COVID lockdown and you just sort of... Wait, is that one of those things? I don't know if it's one of those things where people say, how are you? And then you're supposed to say, fine, um, and, and how are you? But then I always answer it with a terribly depressing monologue. Uh, my neck hurts and it's my birthday in a few days. I'm turning 32, so I'm thinking about death a lot. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Are you ready? I was born ready. Great, let's begin. Why did you decide to start your podcast? So, I've always been really, really interested in other people. That's not to say that I'm more selfless or empathetic than anyone else. Uh, I think I'm just bored by listening to myself drone on. So I hope you enjoy listening to me drone on here. But I do like listening to, to other people and what they think and how... Our minds are different, um, so I got into documentary making and journalism, and I, uh, without any political agenda, I was just really, really interested in different humans and people from different countries and uh, different languages. Um, I really wanted to understand the other person. I always think about how, uh, as a country, we're supposed to get on uh, with like 70 million people who all have different views and stuff, and it's hard enough just to get on with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, you know? Uh, the amount of divorces and stuff. So I just think I've got to know what other people are thinking and how they're living. And I started making documentaries about, you know, I made one about an abusive exorcist and I made another about a an anti-abortion pro-lifer. And these are people who are so different from me and, and they think so differently from me that they fascinate me. And I guess when I was a bit younger, I'm, you know, 31 now, but I was maybe when I was 16, 17, 18, I used to just think, uh, those people are evil, bad people. And I started to think, uh, no, they're not. And I hung around with this pro-lifer woman who, um, yeah, she she was so nice to me. She was horrible to other people. She was going to abortion pro-life, uh, sorry, abortion clinics where, where women were in so much distress trying to sort their lives out after what happened to them. And they were, you know, their worst moments and she's turning turning up and just, you know, being horrible to them. So, but back back at her house, she was really, really nice. So anyway, that just led me to become sort of obsessed with understanding and almost sort of uh, building up an anthology of other minds. Um, and, and yeah, and it became more and more difficult to make documentaries, partly because of COVID and, and all of that stuff, partly because presenter-led documentaries where the journalist is on screen have become less and less fashionable in the last 10 years or so. 
So I was left sort of with a bit of a hole thinking, you know, what am I going to do? I can try and write and stuff and I do a lot of copywriting and stuff to get by. Um, and I found myself, yeah, in the middle of lockdown, just thinking, okay, well, I've got all of these ideas and people that I've spent years researching and looking into. Why don't I start actually trying to talk to them? And it was interesting because you looked, there, there weren't that many podcasts that do exactly that. Um, even if you look at Louis Theroux's podcast, which is endlessly successful, he's not actually interviewing the people that he he became famous for interviewing in the 90s and 2000s. He's not going to speak to a psychopath or a, um, a very religious person or anything like that. He's getting, you know, ce- celebrities that he admires. And it's obviously a very successful thing. And I was surprised and relieved that he didn't go for what he used to do, really, because that's I'm trying to sort of create my own corner with that. Um, so that's that's why I started my my podcast. I, I don't know if I should speak longer um, or shorter, but I, I think that's a fair, that's a succinct-ish um, uh, answer. So yeah, that's that's why I started the podcast. What do you hope people take away from listening to your podcast? Um, I think I, I want, it's really hard, I guess. I want people to, hmm, I want them to be entertained and I want them to laugh sometimes. And I, I think that's actually an underrated quality in any product, any TV, podcast, radio, media is entertainment. And I think we can sometimes get so obsessed, particularly recently, because we all sat at home in lockdown with nothing to do. We get so obsessed with like, people who differ from us and people who have different politics from us and art is now having to be more and more tailored to what you know it feels like art has to have a political opinion of some sort and if if you don't then it's not seen as good art and that's not how I learned about art and I mean art in, in terms of a podcast and, and journalism um, journalism is not supposed to be necessarily activism and I think yeah I, I want to make something entertaining I think that's important for me and it's something that maybe I might not have been so keen to admit and took me years to realize because I wanted to say hey I'm this intrepid journalist going to different worlds and uh, you know doing some activism and and making uh, an abusive exorcist look bad and exposing the wrongs and those are all very worthy causes and they are a huge part of that but if that was my only interest then I would just give more money more money I'd give money to charity so there are plenty of ways you can help the world. And I think it's maybe dishonest. Not that journalists are lying, but I think maybe they're not being entirely honest with themselves sometimes when, and, and I think you have to, you have to do that. You have to tell yourself, I'm doing this because it's a worthy cause. And of course you are, but you're also doing it because you want to entertain people. So that, I want people to be entertained. I want them to laugh sometimes, but also I'm talking to some very, you know, people with tragic stories. Um, so I want them to be able to empathize with those people and hear their stories and more than anything to take away that that feeling of like okay this person is so different from me but this is why they think that way these are the cognitive biases that they have and and if we can all, I like to think if we can all understand each other better then we'll create a bit of a better society um, yeah uh, just thinking even I even had a psychopath on the show at one point, and, and this woman who who feels no empathy. And even with her, I just wanted to get to okay, why is that? Let's not judge you straight away. 
Um, and I've had people on different sides of the political debate, people who are staunch feminists, uh, somebody who's a critical race theorist, but then somebody who's a free speech advocate and anti-woke people. Uh, and, and people have gotten angry on all sides after each of those episodes has aired. And, and really, uh, I think we just, I just, yeah, I, want, I, I guess I want to show how similar we really are deep down. And it's our experiences that make us a little bit different. And that's what I hope people will take away from, from the podcast. What's your worst habit? Um, which ones do I want to be honest about? Do I talk about the nose picking? Um, everyone picks their nose, don't they? I'm not sure about, you know, and there's burping and stuff. Um, what else? I don't think I do any more than anyone else, those things. But you've got to clear it if there's... If there's like you know you don't have a tissue to hand uh over analyzing i over analyze i think that's probably i overshare as well and that was probably difficult if i think about my relationship i've been with my girlfriend for six and a half years and some of the early uh not difficulties as such but you know the things that you have to sort of uh, overcome in when you get to know someone is that i might reveal too much i'm even doing it right now after and i should have learned by now because we've had enough arguments about it um and she's right you know she, she, when she entered into a relationship with me she didn't sign a contract that that meant uh you know i could reveal everything ever but i do like to tell the truth all the time um a, a lot of that is because it's i find it very boring uh, i just find the world boring and it goes back to that point about entertainment i find it boring if someone says you know it's that that question this question's a little bit like the job interview one and people say, so what's your worst, uh, what's your worst, what's your biggest weakness? And my weakness is that I, I work too hard. How boring, you know? And I understand in a job job situation, it's not good to say that you, um, you know, pick your nose or burp or whatever. Uh, but I definitely overanalyze. I had um, uh, some, a little bit, of, I don't, I don't want to complain too much about it, um, but I had a bit of obsessive compulsive disorder when I was a teenager. So that sort of stayed around. And it's also part of this compulsion to tell the truth and to keep, talking all the time so I'm, I'm doing it now um and it, it was quite bad at one point because i was um like opening yeah i was i was like opening and closing doors for like six or seven hours every night um into the early hours and my mom was like oh shut up and i was because i was making noise doing it <laughs> um so that's that's made me a little bit obsessive and a little bit over analytical and Obsessive compulsive people, people who really struggle with it, and I've met some, and I've interviewed one guy, for, ex uh, for example, on my podcast, and he's very offended when either people who don't really have OCD say they have OCD. It became very fashionable, didn't it, at one point when like David Beckham uh, was saying, like, oh, I've got such bad OCD, I have to... Um, I have to put all the Pepsi cans in the fridge at the right time or whatever it was, and, and that's why he's so good at football or whatever. And it became very fashionable to say, oh, God, I've got such bad OCD. And this guy I spoke to, um, who was an enemy journalist uh, on, the, on the podcast, was very offended by that, that people do that. And I, I get that. Um, and he doesn't like when people say they, they used the good side of OCD to forge a career or to, to do better at other things. And I get it because for him, it's crippling. It's so bad that it's crippling. And he can't think of anything else except for these intrusive thoughts and just awful. The guy, he can hardly live. It's horrible how he lives. But 
for me, because it was fairly mild, although it was very disruptive for a few years and I had to go to a therapist when I was a teenager about it, it was mild enough that I do think I've benefited in many ways. You know, the podcast itself is a product of my obsessiveness. Um, it's very hard to launch a podcast uh, like that. And it's taken, it's been nine or 10 months now. And I've just, you know, I've slept like three hours a night because I am just marketing, editing, going on things like this. I will not, it just can't stop. And, and it, if I stop, it's painful. It, it hurts me if I stop and I know I could be doing more. It's very painful. And that, that is that sort of compulsion. It's a compulsion to do the work, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, to, sum, to summarize, my worst habit is, is nose picking. Is there anything you've always wanted to learn, but you thought is too difficult? Uh, yeah, Japanese, Chinese. Uh, I love languages. I speak five languages. I, I thought French was my first one, and I thought French was too difficult. I'd always wanted to learn French. I was 19. Of course, wouldn't that be great? You know, everyone wants to learn French and to learn the piano and to learn these things. Um, and there was a bit of a sliding doors moment because I was studying English at university, and they I just got an email from the French department just saying, hey, English department guys, uh, for some reason people have pulled out of the trip to France for a year, the Erasmus trip. Does, does anybody in the English department want to go? And I just, I'd never thought about it, but I'd got the email and it was like a first come first serve kind of thing. Because if it had been done based on who had the best um, results and stuff, then then I would have not been able to go. But I just happened to be in my email inbox at that moment. So I just went, uh, yeah, I'll go. I don't know. I went to Montpellier and I spent about 18 months there. And then I went back after university and I had a French girlfriend actually um, out there after, after a year or so, after six months, I guess. And she didn't speak a word of English. Um, and she refused to, because some French people refuse to speak any English. It was She felt like it was like, you know, beneath her. I'm not learning English. Um, and that was something that before I met her, I was struggling along with my French. And by the end, within three years or so of, you know, her, her friends, her family, and nobody spoke a word of English that whole time. It just amazed me. It amazed me that the mind could do that. Um, and anyone's mind can, I'm convinced of that. People say, are you good at languages? And I think that's a nonsense. You know, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. Uh, we're all good at languages because we learn to speak our own language. So we can all do it. Obviously, there's less elasticity in the brain as you get older. So um, if you're there long enough, that's the thing. If you're there long enough, you put the work in, you know, you get the languages. Um, but... I then started to think, okay, which are the other ones that are more similar to, to French? And I learned Spanish. I learned Portuguese, which I've already forgotten, basically. Um, and then I came to Germany to learn German, and it was much, much more difficult. Uh, and, and I didn't have, obviously, a, I've got my Argentine girlfriend. We speak English together. Um, German was just difficult. And I can have a conversation in German, but I won't get it to anywhere near the level that I got with French and Spanish, which leads me to think... If I ever tried to learn Japanese or Chinese or, or Arabic, like these cool languages that I'd love to learn, it would just take years and years and years and it would be too difficult. Um, but I do like that kind of, I, I think it's been disproven, but there's that Gladwellian idea, you know, 10,000 hours of anything. And I'm sure there are lots of reasons why that's not true and it depends on the person. But I do feel like if you obsess enough over something, then 
you should be pretty good at it after a few years. It's just the time. And I try to take that philosophy into the podcast, into all the work I do. The, the podcast, the audio podcast is, is doing really well, whereas my YouTube, the video version, gets about 1% of the listens or views. And it's a struggle and it's annoying. And I just keep thinking, no, but if in 10 years time I look back and I know that I've worked on it every single day for 10 years, every day, then surely it will be worth something. Surely it will be getting a lot of views, but I don't know. So yeah, some stuff is is too difficult and you have, you have to know when it's like, look, I'm not going to be some, you know, amazing pianist and I'm not going to be a, a Chinese speaker. Uh, but most things, I think it's just about time. So, so yeah. Cat or dog? <sighs> um, dog. I, and you know what? I don't know why I had to think. I didn't think so long. I was actually trying to think if there was a funny answer to that. And I was going to say, oh, I'm neither. <laughs> um, and I weighed up whether that was funny enough to say. I've come down on the side of it wasn't funny enough to say, but the, the the fact I was thinking that is funny enough to tell you I was thinking. But uh, dog by a million miles, I'm slightly allergic to cats. They they sort of stab you with their little feet. And uh, I, I had a little sausage dog when I was a kid and uh, I loved her very much. When did you last feel alone? I like being alone. Uh, it's a weird one, isn't it? People often wonder about whether they're an introvert or extrovert. And I think most people, it's one of those examples where, and I think it's a, a fairly common thing, what I'm about to say, which is I think most people would imagine I'm an extrovert because of the way I talk and because I like to go out and meet all of these people and I talk and talk and talk. Uh, but I've, I have definitely found that I, I'm not one of those people who gets energy from being around people. I, I need a break after I've had a couple of hours with people. Um, especially if it's like a day, I, I need a bit of me time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I actually being alone, I mean, my girlfriend is, is one of the few people I know in Berlin where I am now. She went back home to Argentina for three weeks. So it was three weeks really where I, I have one mate that I saw twice in that time. And otherwise I didn't speak to a single person apart from, you know, at the cashier to, to buy some shopping. And I did think, like, I wonder if I was in Antarctica, um, would I be all right, you know, in the darkness of winter for six months? And I'm not sure I would want, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily volunteer for that, but I don't think I would see it as a huge punishment, providing I had, um, you know, internet and movies and, uh, you know, maybe, I, maybe I would, it would be interesting. I'd need to be able to call people, call my mum and call my dad and my girlfriend or whatever, but I quite like being alone. Um, yeah. Do I like being alone? I don't know. I, I don't ever feel, I don't feel lonely. I don't get, I get a lot of things, um, but I don't, I don't get lonely really. Do you watch what you eat? No, no. And, and I would go as far as saying that I, um, I'm probably the least healthy person in some ways that I know. Um, it seems like the more and more everybody I talk to is like, oh, I just got back from a 15-mile walk or cycle or I've just been on a run. I've just been doing this and that. Um, I am probably the most sed sedentary person I know. 
And that goes back to what I was saying that I could live in Antarctica. I sit in the chair that I'm sitting in and I work all day here. I might move to the sofa um, and watch a film if I get time with my girlfriend. And then I'll move to the bed. Very, very little of my time is spent on my feet. Uh, I don't really like sitting. It hurts my back. So I like to lie down. Um, and then my body feels weak. It feels very... I used to play football. But anyway, with eating, I'm a vegetarian. Um, not because I want to... Again, I'm, I'm so conscious of being at all sort of worthy. It's not necessarily because I want to save the planet or anything like that. It's just that from a young age, I always felt a bit sick thinking about what the food was, like a living thing. So even if you said to me, like, they didn't suffer at all, it was no problem, blah, 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 it was, I would feel a bit sick thinking about what it is, a dead, you know, chicken. I loved chicken, but chicken is a dead bird on my plate. Um, and if anything else dead touched my plate, you know, if if, an, if, a, if a bird had been walking, if anything had been walking around, like, it touched my plate, you wouldn't eat it, would you? It's just disgusting. And once you get into that way of thinking, it's very hard to go back. So um, vegetarian... And I eat a lot of chocolate, a lot of chocolate. So I will have chocolate, like a big bar of something after lunch. I'll have another big bar, like, you know, a big thing, like after dinner. And I might have what the Argentines call merienda, which is a, it's like, it's like tea, I suppose, but it's usually filled with cakes and stuff like that. So I do worry about it. And I, <laughs> a friend of mine worries about it as well, because I'm, you know, I'm 31 and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not slim anymore, actually, but I, I think I look like a normally built man. And I'm tall, so that's probably why it hasn't gotten fat yet. But I'm six foot three. Uh, and I was sitting at a friend's house. And I go to my friend, partly because I love seeing him, but partly because it's the only excuse to actually cycle somewhere, you know, actually move. And um, I went there, we were playing FIFA or something. And I paused the game and I was like, hang on, mate, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I had a, I had a feeling in my chest. And I've had it a few days in a row. And it's, it's not anxiety, I think it's gas, but it was so close to my heart. But, but what was shocking wasn't my own reaction to it and my own feelings. It was that my friend is so aware of how unhealthy I am that he took me very seriously. Um, and he paused the game and he was like, are you okay? And he stopped and he was like, oh my God. And he was about to call a, you know, usually a 31-year-old who says like, oh God, my heart or something. You go like, oh, shut up. But he was very very concerned about me. And he said later when we talked about it again, he was like, yeah, well, I've seen what you eat and all that. Just just the endless chocolate, so much sugar. So I don't watch what I eat and I should. Are you a leader or a follower? Uh, uh, neither. Um, I hate, yeah, I, I think from a young age, I was always, you know, at school, I was getting into trouble a lot because I hated the idea of following. I hated that. I had a problem with I suppose a problem with authority again it's so cliche isn't it but uh, I hated the idea of anybody being sort of able to tell me what to do uh, even my own parents I didn't like it I, I felt very trapped by being a follower in that sense in terms of authority and I suppose if you're inclined to think that way you also are inclined to think whenever there's a new fashion whether it be political or just you know clothes or whatever I don't want to follow it I'm not interested um and I, I'd even go as far as to question my belief all the time and to question my experience. If I feel like I'm enjoying something, I might even question it and go, am I just enjoying it because everybody told me I should enjoy it? So I, I hate to follow. But then whenever I've been given an opportunity, say at work or in you know, journalism or whatever, to have people working under me, and maybe that's, you know, 
if, if I was being totally honest in a, in a job interview, that would be that thing of like, what's your biggest weakness? But I wouldn't say it because it would probably, uh, you know, disqualify me from getting the job. Um, I can't lead. I don't enjoy leading. Um, and I've had a few times when I've put together teams to work, you know, on, on my documentaries. And then there's a bunch of younger people and there were these moments where... You know, there's the production assistant and another person and there's a couple of people with cameras and stuff. And there's a moment where maybe it goes quiet and they look up at me and there's like these people who are younger and less experienced than me. And I'm supposed to then go like, right, uh, this is what we do now, everybody. And, and if they ever do anything wrong, I will be petrified of telling them like, uh, you know, and... And it is a problem because I did have that with a guy who was a production assistant and he had some suggestions and stuff and I needed to just tell him like, no, we're not doing that. And and But because every sort of my aura that I gave off was so, so um, weak, I suppose, and so trying to sort of get along with everybody, he started to take more power more and more and more and push and push and push. And eventually we ended up having a bit of an argument and I had to say like, look, it's not working us working together and looking back at that it was because i it was because i wasn't strong enough from the beginning so i'm neither a leader or a follower if i had to choose one i'd say leader what podcast episode has been your biggest achievement um yeah i thought about i i've thought about this a few times and i think um uh it's a difficult one because they're all just sort of getting people on right but uh the one that is the biggest achievement is also the most uh, controversial one. It's the one that would put most people off. If you think about what a, what a journalistic achievement is, I guess it's getting somebody on who has been very hard to get access to and has very rarely given their opinion or, and very rarely been able to speak and had a platform and has shown people something totally new. And I feel like all of those boxes are ticked on, I think it was episode six, so it was a good few months ago, one of my first ever episodes, and it was with a, a non-offending uh, paedophile. And he was an interesting one for me because he was 18. And he's the head boy of his school in Germany. But he speaks fluent English. So we spoke and I slightly changed his voice. And he was happy with that, that no one would recognize him. But that came at the end of two years of investigation because I was looking to write a book, which is going to be very hard to publish. But I've basically written it. Because I happen to move to Germany, and in Germany they have the world's only therapy for paedophiles that never reports them to authorities. So no matter what the paedophile says to the therapist, they will not go to prison. And that's obviously very controversial, and I don't know how I feel about it, because it means putting these guys back onto the street where they could abuse again. However, it also means they'll actually get these guys to come in and do therapy, and that will save a lot of children's lives. So... Very, very complicated, very controversial, and it took years of infiltrating like their message boards, getting to meet loads of these people. I met a 25-year-old woman who, who was a paedophile and is marrying a 27-year-old man this year who is also a paedophile. They help each other to never offend. I had no interest in platforming any paedophile who, who thinks it's okay to offend or who has offended. Uh, I just don't have, there's just no point. Of, of doing that but the non-offender guy was just interesting and it was very hard very hard from a journalistic you know what do I ask him uh, and and how do I show 
him respect as a human being who has who, who's made the choices from what he's told me to never offend but also show my listeners that i have a you know obviously like most of us a zero tolerance for any kind of touching you know relationship between an adult and a child which you know just absolutely shouldn't happen and it got me a lot of one star reviews from people who i think hadn't listened to it because i called the episode you know uh, chat with a pedophile or something like that and once i changed the name to just we need to talk about silas that was his name the fake name he gave me uh i got i didn't get any more one one star reviews but it got two or three at the time uh when it came out and on youtube there were a lot of angry comments as if as if i was like defending pedophilia it was mad to me but uh that's that's what journalism's about i think like, you know sometimes pushing boundaries sometimes having those conversations that are very difficult to have and you know from talking to therapists about it i i sort of come down on that side of like we need to talk about it a bit more because uh we're so scared of talking about it uh that that it doesn't help children it doesn't help them they 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 continue to get abused by confused pedophiles who need to go into therapy anyway so that's that was probably the biggest achievement journalistically um <clears throat> Although I would definitely recommend my episode with Sue Black, who's a, a criminal anthropologist. Um, that was really, people loved that one. She's just the most amazing person I've ever spoken to. You're up next on karaoke. What song have you picked? Mm, I find myself singing along a lot to Travis, writing to reach you. I quite like how he suddenly goes from, he's not that hard to sing along with. That's the thing. Like, I'd love to sing along to Angels, but it's not that easy. Uh, whereas Travis, a lot of it's sort of middle notes, but then he'll suddenly go high, but you can do that head voice. So, right into reach you, I might never reach you, only want to teach you about you. That song. Um, I didn't give it my full attention there because I thought if I get it wrong, it's no good. You know, I don't want people thinking I'm a bad singer. Um yeah, although that's not a good karaoke song, is it? Travis, what am I talking about? Uh, I'll, I'll sing Angels. But yeah, Angels. In what areas of your life are you settled? None, none. And that's that was the that was the attraction of moving away. I moved away when I was eighteen. Uh, obviously, at university, like a lot of us did. So from London, I moved up to Leeds. And then I moved to Montpellier in France, and then Bordeaux in France, and then um, Medellin in Colombia. I was there for a year, and Buenos Aires for six years, and I've been in Berlin for two years now. And a lot of that is running away from the idea of being settled. I don't want to think about, you know, death and stuff. And there is, a, we're supposed to move back, my girlfriend and I. That that is an area I'm settled in, my girlfriend. So that's that's the one. <laughs> and she came with me to move around, so so she's part of that. It's sort of a settled, unsettled. Not unsettled, like horrible, but, un, you know. Hmm. But yeah, she, I, I'm cons look, we're, we're supposed to move back to England in like September or something. And uh, that is a worry. It's this thing of like, you move to a house, you have a child, you do all this stuff. And it's like from the age of, say, so I'm 31, so I'll be 32. From the age of 32 until, if I'm lucky, 90, it's just 60 years of like, I'm settled now. So it's just scary. It's a long, whereas if you break it into bite-sized things and you never know what's coming around the corner, you can maybe convince yourself not to think too much about, you know, your own mortality and that kind of thing. But 
yeah, I, I, if you ask me in a year, I'll be a lot more settled and perhaps a lot more unsettled emotionally about being settled. What is the best line to say to a stranger to start a conversation? Um, <laughs> loads of horrible swear words came into my head suddenly and I thought it would be funny and I thought, you know what, I don't need it. I don't need to go there. You, this and that. Um, I used to think, where are you from? And I remember being in a hotel or hostel in somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Colombia when I was living out there. I went down to somewhere near the border of Ecuador, just middle of nowhere, this like eco hostel. And it's like, there's there's nothing for for like miles and miles and miles. And I'm not some kind of hippie guy who stays at an eco hostel and does, you know, that's just not me. I like my comfort. I like my PlayStation and my movies and stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, you've got to try stuff. And I was younger as well. And I remember going up to somebody and I said, uh, you know, hi. And I think we said our names. And I said, well, so, so whereabouts are you from? Because I thought, well, I'll, I'll just, so they said, and I always remember, and it, was it a guy or a woman? I don't even remember. But I just remember the answer being like, why would you ask me that? Is that the, you think that's the most interesting thing about me? And I guess their thing was like, you know, I'm so interesting that my identity transcends culture and and countries and stuff countries are, you know they are ridiculous they are lines in the sand that just people have made them up however having lived in different places I, I there are huge tells there are things that a colombian would say that an argentine person would never say there are there are things like that so you know there was that there was a huge controversy recently with something a uruguayan footballer had said and he was getting banned in england and stuff like that and having lived in argentina which is basically uruguay they have the same culture uh, i felt very much like yeah but i know why he said that because they all say that and it, they have just a different way of thinking so i'm still going to stick with that it's just like hey where are you from because I, I know we we don't want to think of ourselves as products of our environments we want to think we're special but if somebody tells me where they're from, it will give me so much to go off. If they say they're from Argentina, especially, I can say like, oh, I've been to this place. And what do you think about that celebrity? And if they say they're from a place I don't know, I can say, oh, tell me about that place. Uh, and I can't think of anything that actually gives you as much information about the person as that, even though we obviously don't want to be limited to where we're from. If you could be best friends with a celebrity, who would it be? Hmm. Mm. Ricky Gervais. Um, I like him. He seems like a nice guy. He's not. He's not. He's he's not interested in, in making stuff up to please people. He's not boring to talk to. He's entertaining, and I think he's probably a very good person. I think he's a nice, good person who's very caring and cares about a lot of nice things. And he's so uh, maybe Ricky Gervais. And I'd like to say David Baddiel. I like David Baddiel. I find him very funny. He's just, he can crack me up like no one else. And uh, again, I you know, I love J.K. Rowling, but there's a whole, that's like, you can't say you like J.K. Rowling without it being a political thing. I don't want to be political. I just, you know, she she changed my childhood with, uh, with the books that she wrote. So I'd like to meet them. Louis Theroux was a huge influence on me, but they say never meet your heroes. So I just, I would be a bit wary of that. So I'm going to stick with either Gervais or David Baddiel. Do aliens exist? Yeah, yeah, uh, must do, I think. Uh, 
I did a I did a thing for HBO. I did this like short mini documentary in Argentina um, in a place called Capilla del Monte, which is this place that's known for aliens. Um, and something happened in the 80s where like a bit of the forest got burnt or something and everybody decided, oh, it must have been aliens. Um, and I met some great people. And again, it was it was just an example of meeting people whose, view, whose views and ways of thinking are so different from mine because obviously I don't believe there were like aliens walking around like chatting and stuff, but they do believe that. And I got to know this lovely, amazing woman in her 50s or 60s or something who runs the UFO museum there. Everything in that town is about UFOs. It's a really beautiful place in the middle of nowhere as well. It's stunning uh, outside Cordoba. And um, she was just so lovely. And she had had a dream in Colombia. She was in she was from like near Bogota, I think. And she had a dream. She she fasted because she felt depressed and she did this whole fast and ritual stuff of like eight or nine days. And towards the end, she had had this uh, hallucination. And the, the, it's ridiculous this, but she had this hallucination that was like a shape. And she drew the shape out and a friend was like, that looks like the shape of uh, Capiche del Monte on a map, which is insane. And she was like, right, I'm going to go down there. So she goes down there, falls in love with the guy who runs the UFO museum. They married and lived together for however many years. And he had a heart attack and it was very sad. So now she runs the museum in his memory. And the way she talks about him is so sad. And she she, she just loves him. And she says that the aliens come and visit and they, they give her updates about how he is. And it was just so, so sad. She had me in tears all the while I was thinking, you, this is bonkers but it helps you. Um, I remember hearing most scientists tend to say like due, just due to the, the sheer vastness of the universe, there must be life out there. Um, but then I do remember Professor Brian Cox, he said a couple of different things that sort of, you know, I, I think he's not entirely sure. Of course he's not sure, no one is. But I've heard him say that the probability of us being around is, is so slim. It's so slim and it wasn't just, it was every part of our galaxy, the way it formed had to be exactly right that that we we occurred and it might be possible that even if there is micro whatever on other planets and things that for somebody to form and to have our kind of you know the way we communicate and stuff maybe it, it maybe it isn't anywhere but i i think it's just too vast and there must be and i'd love to find out it would be a great news news day wouldn't it if you could start your podcast again what would you do differently um I think there's stuff I've changed already in, in, in the last nine or ten months. So if I look back at the beginning, uh, I, I was you know, a big control freak and I'd been used to editing film and documentaries where you really edit stuff down. So my first episode was with a guy who was the son of the Westboro Baptist Church founder. And we spoke for like you know an hour and a half or whatever. And I edited his, I edited his interview down to like 30 minutes or something. Every um I took out every bit where it looked like he's already said something similar you know like any editor would do for a documentary um now someone's ringing the door but i'm just gonna leave it it's probably um post they always ring the door but it drives me mad because everyone gives me their in our building if they give you the post for other people and then the whole day people are ringing um what would i do yeah so so i did that and i think it was condensed and i had this theory of like look joe rogan's podcast is three hours long it's obviously very successful but most podcasts are just blah, blah, not answering that door as as they've gotten on now i just sort of 
leave them almost as they are. I take out bits and pieces. I speed things up a little bit. So that's what I would change from the beginning is just to let it flow a little bit more and just trust that the, the, the listener does want to listen to stuff. What puts you on the edge? Hmm. That's a great question. I think it's, it's, I mean, even the title of my podcast is quite vague. And I think purposely so, because on the edge implies that you're going to have all these people who are like total nutters, right? But because of the podcast format, you can't really have uh, people who, you don't want to platform like a flat earther, you know? And he's going to he's gonna know more about flat earth than I am. So it's going to end up looking like the flat earth thing is right. So it's not as, it's, you don't have the same freedom you have with documentaries in terms of like having really edgy people. And some of the people I've had on are people like Daniel Finkelstein, who had written a book called Everything in Moderation, which is the antithesis of On the Edge. So On the Edge is vague, but I guess what I want to get across with it is, is that, you know, we all have different ways of thinking and it's very, it can be, let's listen to those and put ourselves onto the edge, onto the precipice. Uh, and what puts me on the edge is meeting meeting people that I would never, ever have met just day to day. I, I love that. That's my favorite thing. So that's what, that's what puts me on the edge in a good way. That's all the questions completed. How did you find the experience? I loved it. I had a great time. It was really good. The only, th- yeah, I guess if, if I'd, I guess I would say what would be good, maybe, and maybe it's not necessary actually at all. If there was a counter, if it was like you've got two minutes to answer each or five minutes to answer each question, because I that's just me though, because I'm just like, I, I will talk to fill the silence. And if I'm worried, like, oh, have I given enough or I've given too much now? Thank you again, Andrew, for being a guest on Podcaster. It was nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcaster. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PodcasterPod. This podcast was brought to you by the Chancer Collective. Take care and until next time, goodbye.